0: You're listening to Writers on a New England stage with Jojo Moyes. This program originally aired in 2018.
1: Can everybody hear me? Um, Thank you so much for turning out on a very cold evening. We English people are not quite used to this level of cold. Um, I'm going to do a short reading first. I tell you it's short because there's nothing worse than a really long reading and I want to reassure you that that's not going to happen. And then I'm going to have a little chat with you about how this book came about. And then, as you've been told, then we'll get to the stuff. But I really, really want some questions from you, because otherwise I'm going to have to come down there and pick out individual people. And you don't want that. (laughs) So I'm going to read uh, a little bit from Still Me, my new book. It's the last book in the Louisa Clark series. Oh. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, here we go. I'll start. It was the moustache that reminded me I was no longer in England. A solid gray millipede firmly obscuring the man's upper lip. A village people moustache. A cowboy moustache. The miniature head of a broom that meant business. You just didn't get that kind of moustache at home. I couldn't tear my eyes from it. Ma'am, oh I should actually say here, I apologize in advance for my really bad American accent. (laughs) Don't be distracted. Ma'am. The only person I had ever seen with a moustache like that at home was Mr. Naylor, our maths teacher, and he collected digestive crumbs in his. We used to count them during algebra. <laughs> Ma'am? Oh, sorry. The man in the uniform motioned me forward with a flick of his stubby finger. He did not look up from his screen. I waited at the booth, long haul sweat drawing gently into my dress. He held up his hand, waggling four fat fingers. This I grasped after several seconds was a demand for my passport name it's there i said your name ma'am uh louise elizabeth clark i peered over the counter though i never actually used the elizabeth bit because my mum realized after they named me that that would make me lou lizzie and if you say it really fast it sounds like lunacy and though my dad says that's kind of fitting not that i'm a lunatic i mean you wouldn't want lunatics in your country huh my voice bounced nervously off the plexiglass screen The man looked at me for the first time. He had solid shoulders and a gaze that could pin you like a taser. He did not smile. He waited until my own faded. Sorry, I said. People in uniform make me nervous. I glanced behind me at the immigration hall, at the snaking queue that had doubled back on itself so many times it had become an impenetrable, restless sea of people. I think I'm feeling a bit odd from standing in that queue. That is honestly the longest queue I've ever stood in. I'd begun to wonder whether to start my Christmas list. Put your hand on the scanner. Is it always that size? The scanner? He frowned. No, the cue. But he was no longer listening. He was studying something on his screen. I put my fingers on the little pad, and then my phone dinged. It was mum. Have you landed? I went to tap an answer with my free hand, but he turned sharply towards me. Ma'am, you are not permitted to use cell phones in this area. Oh, it's just my mum. She wants to know if I'm here. I surreptitiously tried to press the thumbs up emoji as I slid the phone out of view. "'Reason for travel?' "'What is that?' Mum's immediate reply came. "'She had taken to texting like a duck to water "'and could now do it faster than she could speak, "'which was basically warp speed. "'You know my phone doesn't do the little pictures. "'Is that an SOS? Louisa, tell me you're okay.' (laughs) "'Reasons for travel, ma'am?' "'The moustache twitched with irritation. "'He added slowly, "'What are you doing here in the United States?' "'Oh, I have a new job.' "'Which is?' "'I'm going to work for a family in New York.' Central Park. Just briefly the man's eyebrows might have raised a millimetre. He checked the address on my form confirming it. What kind of job? It's a bit complicated but I'm sort of a paid companion. A paid companion? (laughs) Well, well, It's like this. I used to work for this man. I was his companion, but I would also give him his meds and take him out and feed him. That's not as weird as it sounds, by the way. He had no use of his hands. It wasn't like something pervy. Anyway, my last job ended up as more than that because it's hard not to get close to the people that you work with. And Will, the man, well, he was amazing. And, well, while we fell in love, too late I felt the familiar welling of tears. I wiped at my eyes briskly. So I, I think it'll be sort of like that except for the love bit and the feeding. The immigration officer was staring at me. I tried to smile. Actually, I don't normally cry talking about jobs. I'm not like an actual lunatic, despite my name. But I really loved him and he loved me. And then, well, he, he chose to end his life. And so this is sort of my attempt to start over. The tears were now leaking relentlessly, embarrassingly from the corners of my eyes. I couldn't seem to stop them. I couldn't seem to stop anything. I'm sorry, it it must be the jet lag. It's something like 2 o'clock in the morning in real time, right? Plus, I don't generally talk about him anymore. I mean, I have a new boyfriend, and he's great. He's a paramedic, and hot. That's like winning the boyfriend lottery, right? A hot paramedic. (laughs) I scrabbled around in my handbag for a tissue. When I looked up, the man was holding out a box. I took one, thank you. So anyway, my friend Nathan, he's from New Zealand, he works here and he helped me get this job and I don't really know what it involves yet apart from looking after this rich man's wife who apparently gets depressed, but I've decided this time I'm going to live up to what Will wanted for me because before I didn't get it right. I just ended up working in an airport. I froze. Not that there's anything wrong with working at an airport. I'm sure immigration is a very important job, really important. But I have a plan. I'm going to do something new every week that I'm here, and I'm going to say yes. Say yes to new things. Will always said I shut myself off from new experiences, so this is my plan. The officer studied my paperwork. You didn't fill the address section out properly. I need a zip code. He pushed the form towards me. I checked the number on the sheet that I'd printed out and filled it in with trembling fingers. I glanced to my left where the queue at my section was growing restive. At the front of the next queue, a Chinese family was being questioned by two officials. As the woman protested, they were led into a side room. I felt, suddenly, very alone. The immigration officer appeared at the people waiting, and then, abruptly, he stamped my passport. Good luck, Louisa Clark, he said. I stared at him. That's it? That's it. I smiled. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. I mean, it's quite weird being on the other side of the world by yourself for the first time, and now I feel a bit like I just met my first nice new person, and you need to move along now, (laughs) ma'am. Of course. Sorry. I gathered up my belongings and pushed a sweaty front of hair from my face. And ma'am? Yes? I wondered what I'd got wrong now. He didn't look up from his screen. Be careful what you say yes to. Um, So I'll just tell you a very little bit about Still Me, which picks up pretty much on the same 24-hour period that the last book ended, which um, I think is quite a close sequel. Um, I'm going to tell you why I set this book in the States and in New York in particular. And To do that, I'm just going to tell you a very brief bit about my own history with New York. The first time I ever went to New York was about 25 years ago. Oh gosh, okay, that's terrifyingly old. Um, And I went for a long weekend with a girlfriend and I had such a good time, I think I didn't sleep for like three days. And then I got on the flight to come home and it was one of those nightmare flights where the turbulence is so bad that the trolleys actually start going up and down the aisle and people are screaming and praying and I had two really nice guys behind me who had drunk a bottle of whiskey and were talking very loudly for quite a lot of the flight about the various brothels they were going to visit when they hit London. So that was nice. And what I didn't realize until I tried to get on another flight sometime after this was this had left me with a kind of pathological fear of flying so bad that when I got on a flight and the plane started to take off, my knees would knock together so hard that they would make a sound. And that's almost as bad as being frightened of flying is actually being frightened of your knees knocking together so loudly (laughs) that they make a sound in front of a plane full of people. And this just got worse and worse until it became easier for me just not to fly and instead pretend to my family every year that they didn't want to go long haul. They didn't want to visit America or Australia or Brazil. What they really wanted to do was go caravanning in northern France (laughs) where sometimes it didn't even rain. So you know that was great. And I got away with that for about 15 years. I'm such a nice mum, and uh, eventually Me Before You happened and a couple of things happened when Me Before You first took off in the UK one of which is I sold the film rights really quickly and I've sold a few film rights before and the best way to look at them if you're a writer is just to say they're like a kind of lottery ticket it sounds really exciting and sometime in the future you've got a chance of something amazing happening but really the odds against it are a, pretty much tiny. The odds against it are huge, the chances of it happening are tiny. Anyway, this was the first time I thought something might actually happen. Uh, It just had a good feel about it. I met the company, I'm not gonna name them. Everyone was very enthusiastic and then I waited for lawyers to do their thing. Kind of the the year crept on and I kept thinking, I'm sure I should have heard back from those people. And then I got a phone call saying, uh, the deal's off. I said, why? They said, well, Harvey Weinstein... uh, (laughs) This is my own little Weinstein story. It's not as exciting as the other ones, (laughs) or or as traumatic, but it was kind of... Harvey Weinstein had decided to put out an announcement that he was doing his own film about a similar subject matter, which was an English-language remake of a very famous French film called The Untouchables, which is about a quadriplegic man in a wheelchair who takes on a young African man as his carer and it's about the relationship between them. I didn't even know this film existed and basically everything fell apart because nobody wanted to go up against Harvey Weinstein. So the deal was off. And I you know, went home and kicked a few walls and felt bitter and then I thought, you know what, this book has done so well already, I can't be churlish, I just have to get over myself and get on with it. And I had bigger things to worry about, such as the fact that I now had to fly to New York for the first time. And I was that person who used to lie awake for three days beforehand, writing my will, writing letters to my children, telling them what I needed them to do in the, for the next 20 years, um, having my husband explain to me wearily yet again why, if there were a million planes in the sky right now, why I wasn't that special, that mine was the one that was gonna fall out. And finally, I got on the plane and really very nervous, I had some Valium, didn't even touch the sides, I was just sitting there like a wreck, rang my husband obviously to say goodbye forever and it was nice knowing him, (laughs) and he said, you need to just distract yourself, why don't you turn on the entertainment system, guess what the first film that came up was? (laughs) The Untouchables, anyway, the upshot was, it's a really good film, especially if you've taken a shed load of Valium and some champagne, because... (laughs) I laughed, I cried, <laughs> I flew a little bit. It was a very entertaining film. Anyway, and the flight just passed in no time, amazingly. Um, but that started a whole new love affair with New York because when I arrived, you know, 20 years pretty much since I'd last been, all I could think was, why did I not come back here sooner? I had sudden envy for people who got to live there because it was so exciting. And I was basically looking at it through the eyes of an alien because I'd had so little to do with it. And every time I then went on a US tour, which I think this is like number five or something, I would always start in New York. And sometimes I would go a day early so that I would have a day to walk around. And here's the thing about writing about New York is it's been done already and it's probably been done better than anybody else can do it subsequently. So I thought, if I decided to write about this city, the only way I could do it was not as someone who understood it better than a New Yorker, but as an alien, if you see what I mean. I mean, obviously, I'm not green with stuff, hang on. But um, so that's how I tried to approach it. And to do that, Obviously, I had to come back and do a research trip, which was really hard and arduous. I'm sorry, husband. I just have to go to New York for a week to just entertain myself. Um, But a couple of things happened. Obviously, I tried to do all the things that I was going to put Louisa through. But I used to be a journalist many years ago. and One of the things that has really helped my writing has been the understanding that to bring something to life on a page, you have to experience it. You know, I know a lot of writers now don't go further than Google because they say you can get everything. You can get the pictures. You can do Street View. You can, you know, you can find out every single fact you need to know. Well, I don't agree with that because what I find is that when you go to somewhere that you want to write about, you hear different rhythms in people's speech. You smell the smells. You know, in New York, there's quite a few of those. There's, um, you know, you see the the things on the sidewalk, the the hawkers and the the you know, falafel trucks, and you you hear the noise levels, you know, which if you live in the country like I do, it's just kind of enormous, the way the sound bounces off the buildings, the way the buildings are so insanely tall. Um, so that's what I was trying to do, is, is replicate the view of somebody who hadn't been there before. And one of the things that I wanted to do was, uh, I wanted to set a scene at 30 Rock, uh, at the top of the Rockefeller Center, because I felt like, well, the Empire State's been done, has anybody done 30 work? And if you go on to Google to do your research, what you will find on TripAdvisor and Google is that you go into an elevator, you go up 60 floors, something like that, and then you come out the top and there's an amazing view. Guess what? It's not like that in real life. Some of you may know this already, given that you live here, but... In real life, you have to basically navigate your way to the tower f- from you know, lots of other bits of Rockefeller, which I knew nothing about. And then you go into an elevator and you brace yourself for this you know, stratospheric rise. It goes, whoop, and then it stops at another floor, and, and everybody gets shoved out. And you go, well, what, what, what happens now? Do I have to walk? <laughs> Then you go into another elevator, but before then you have to go through a whole museum thing and loads of pictures, and then you have to sit on a girder and have someone take your picture and tell you to kiss someone that you've never met before, so they can take your picture and sell it to you at the other end. And and the more of these things I got put through, the more I kept thinking, OK, this is a completely different thing. And then you get to the top and you go, oh, OK, I'm up here, it's beautiful. Oh, but hang on, that's not the top. This is the top. So then you go up another layer. And then there's all the people, it's an open view and it's beautiful. And then someone goes, No, 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 this isn't the top, that's the top. And says there's another little flight of stairs. And what I realized again is it's such a great example of why you cannot trust the internet. Uh, you know, you just have to go there, get giddy, you know, smell the smells of your fellow Lyft travelers and um, sit on the girder. I made some good friends. And so basically, pretty much everything here I have done and I have corrected my. <laughs> views of myself. Um, I loved writing this book. I think partly because I knew it was the last time I was going to visit Lou in novel form. I haven't ruled out maybe a short story sometime in the future. I find her such an easy character to inhabit and that doesn't often happen. Um, I've written whole books where 75% of the way through I've realised I still don't know the characters that I'm talking about properly. She she comes easily to me. And so really, the hardest thing was working out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say with this book because a book is never just a book. Uh, a book is also the thing that you want to say which runs underneath the plot and underneath everything that happens. And I had become aware through the success of Me Before You and After You that Lou had this whole army of female followers, often quite young, you know, often sort of teens to late 20s, And, you know, we live in strange times. (laughs) There's a lot of politics and a lot of stuff going on. That's all I'm going to say on that matter. Um, But what I realized was that it was really important to me that what I did with Louisa meant that at the end of this book, I might not be able to solve anything. You know, I'm just a writer of commercial fiction, but I didn't want to be part of the problem. So, what I have done with her, I'm not going to tell you too much and be too specific. But it was really important to me that I wasn't telling her audience that your, your life is gonna be perfect if you meet the right man or if you suddenly have kind of huge financial success or you know, you wear the right shoes or buy the right handbag because life isn't like that. And I considered a lot of things to do, Teresa. I even considered killing her off at one point, but then you know my <laughs> husband was like, no. Well, because I thought she could be with Will and it would be kind of ghostly and lovely and he was just like, no. Absolutely not. Um, So anyway, she doesn't die. I'm just going to tell you that in advance. It's not a spoiler. Uh, But I hope that when you, those of you who bought this book or borrowed it from your library, because those are great too, um, I hope that you feel where Louisa ends up at the end of this book is, is satisfying and it is the right place for her to end up. And I'm not gonna tell you any more than that because I think we've probably reached a musical interlude. <laughs> this is where I do a dance. <laughs> oh no, I don't do that, that's later, okay. Um, so I'm gonna leave you to the lovely band and come back to talk some more and please think of your questions. No rude ones, I'm not gonna answer those. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: So, Jojo, what a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really, really glad you're here. Uh, You talked about Louisa landing in New York, and she goes to work for this ultra-wealthy family, Mm -hmm. the Gopniks. And you said, you know, you talked about doing your research in New York, but those big apartment buildings on the Upper East Side, there are a lot of secrets there, and a lot of servants who don't normally tell those secrets. So how did you get a view inside? Uh, Well... I have a
1: friend called Monica Lewinsky, who... Way to open. (laughs) (laughs) She, She doesn't live there, I hasten to add, but she has some really interesting friends. And so I asked her if she knew anybody who might be willing to let a really nosy writer come and sniff around their apartment. And it's testament to her kind of charm and nice friends that that happened. And so we had tea and she also introduced me to an amazing realtor who's been selling those buildings for donkey's years, and between the two of them, I really got to find out about the kind of blood flow around the buildings, because it was really important to me that that building become a character in itself. I really like the way that those buildings, you know, do start to become characters. The fact that on the the east side, you know, the buildings tend to be older and often they have terrible plumbing, like all the things that you just wouldn't expect and the fact that because everything is a co-op and has to run by a board, nothing ever gets changed because people don't like the change. And uh, Whereas on the other side, you have the kind of really filthy rich people, the oligarchs and the pop stars who all have, you know, kind of swimming pools and 24-hour restaurants downstairs and creches and gyms and cinemas and all the rest of it. It was just fascinating. But it's, it's like that thing in London... If you live in North London, you almost never go south and vice versa. And I can tell as an ex-Londoner whether someone comes from North or South London. I can can even hear it in their voice. And I thought, it must be the same in New York. You must be able to know kind of roughly where someone comes from. There must be kind of minute signals that give you those clues. And that's what I wanted to pick up.
0: Oh, part of the microcosm inside of this building, the Lavery... Uh, are the servant class yeah. who, um, in this case, they're actually asked to wear uniforms. I mean, not yes. super strict uniforms, but uh, I, I think somebody tells her, Louisa, in the beginning, it's best to know where everyone stands.
1: That and is they... actually a phrase that someone told me. Uh, the the weird, sort of, One of the weird side effects of the success of the books over the past few years is that I have had access to some people's lives that... I might not otherwise have had, and that was a phrase that was used to me about someone with staff. And I think if you have grown up without staff, as most of us may have done, there is something quite strange about the way that the super rich live an observed life, a life in which their home, their refuge, is the workplace to kind of teams of people. Hmm. And so they can never entirely relax because There's this sort of bizarre charade of people pretending that nobody's looking when everybody knows that everybody's looking. You know, the servants know everything about those lives. They may know more than the husband or wife know. And yet everybody pretends that that's not the case because there's no other way to live that life. And I just, you know, as a novelist, you're really fascinated by tension. That's the thing that drives a narrative. And for me, that tension between maybe not wanting people around but being entirely dependent on those people was was a really strange one.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, this observe. And Perhaps you grew up with servants. <laughs> well, I do grow up with yeah. servants, um, <laughs> uh, of course. Um, but, you know, but this is not the first book where you had this working-class woman mm-hmm. set into this world of, you know, uh, the super, super rich. What is it about that, that that works for you?
1: Well, I should say, in fairness, it's like two of my books out of 14 are to okay, do with okay. that. All
0: right. um, in but, a couple of your books... <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this is... A, for me, this is about money more than class. You know, I think Me Before You was definitely about class and aspiration. This is about money, pure and simple. You, you, you are either a have or a have not. And I think... The thing that interested me about the relationship between Mr. Gopnik's ex-wife and the kind of circle that they moved in that they won't now allow his second wife to move into Mm. is you can see that in almost any social strata. It doesn't actually have to be the the wealthy. It, It could be, you know, it could be a working man's club in New Jersey. If you get that second wife coming in and there's kind of... A handful of 50 year old wives who are looking at their own own husband going, don't even think about it. You know, that young wife is going to get the same reception. Um, It's just that when you also introduce money, there's a whole new layer of tension because the kids are thinking, she's going to pop out a sproggon and that's going to be it. There's my inheritance gone. And that just adds to more. Or is that just my thinking of it? (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, this woman, her name is Agnes. Um, She's stunningly beautiful mm-hmm. uh, Eastern European woman, a much younger wife of a one percenter. Um, when did you start writing this book yeah.
1: exactly? I, this is the weird thing. I started writing this book a long time before any other women who resemble that description in any way may have come to public prominence. And it was only when I'd finished that I was describing the book to someone, a friend of mine, and she was just like, have you just written a Melania book? And I was just like, <laughs> "Oh no!" Um, I, you know what? I think, I think Agnes may not be the only young, beautiful second wife of a one percenter. Um, she's she's not. Well, I don't know Melania. Perhaps she is very like Melania. But um, in my head, she's not like Melania. She, although, I think there is a certain survivor instinct that has to possibly come into play to exist in that sphere. Um, that's probably all I'm gonna say.
0: Well, well, many people would look at her and think, she won the lottery. You know, yeah. she was not wealthy, she's got this very uh, rich husband who adores her. You know, she basically shops and works out and wears couture gowns. Yeah, all her fancy. problems
1: are luxury problems, her yeah. Problems
0: are, so how do you write a character like that and make her sympathetic? Because I think she is, you know, you feel for her.
1: Um, do you know, there's a... Uh, an interview that stayed with me. um, Oh God, sorry, I've got jet lag brain. Who wrote Eat, Pray, Love? Uh,
0: Elizabeth Gilbert.
1: Elizabeth Gilbert. And I read an interview with her where she did an amazing thing after she achieved kind of huge financial success. And she gave away huge amounts of money to her close friends so they could pay off their mortgages. And she thought this was a really great thing to do because she felt so lucky. She just wanted to make sure everybody else felt that way. And I thought, yep, that would be a kind of fairly fundamental impulse to kind of improve everybody's lives. And she said the worst thing happened, which was that some of them didn't wanna talk to her anymore because uh, for them, she had removed something that they were aspiring to that they hadn't realized they needed it and also they felt obligated to her in a weird way and it was the first time I kind of thought about the fact that you know you can joke about the phrase luxury problems but it can be a problem and what that money had done was isolate her from her friends in a way that was totally unexpected so when I thought about Agnes I thought about the fact that there might be a degree of resentment among her friends that she had kind of won the lottery, as you say. But there was also a pride, you know, that people don't always want to be given things. They want to earn things and they want to be your equal. They don't want to feel like the poor relation. And Agnes's friends are proud women, so they, they didn't want to do it. And in the end, it just becomes easier not to rub up against that person. It's just easier to avoid them because the feelings that someone's success on that level can induce are so compli- complicated and maybe tell you something not great about yourself. So in the end, it's easier not to see them at all.
0: Yeah, she's really isolated. Yeah, she's isolated. And, and she, her security's kind of based on hiding things. You know, they're, they're erasing yeah. fundamental parts of herself. Yes. Let's say. <sighs> um. Everything's a bargain in well, the end, so, yeah. So at what cost do we do this as women? I mean, I think on some level a lot of people leave, a, a lot of women, and I'm, I'm saying that just because this is a very sort of female-centric story. Mm. Um, well, that fascinates me.
1: You know, I, I, I grew up with uh, two parents who basically told me I could do anything if I wanted to. and. You know we didn't have a lot of money growing up but what i did feel I, I grew up with this slightly insane belief that i really could do anything so when i was in my early 20s i would fix cars i would you know uh lay on my my mom would come visit and i would be on my back under a car and she sort of i could tell she thought she would may, maybe gone too far and she she said to me once you know you have to leave a man somewhere to go she's <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> And I'm like, "Mom, you betrayer of your sex," you know. Um, and uh, sorry, I've completely lost my thread now. <laughs> Just well, we
0: were talking about at what cost we do this yeah, as women, and um, the parts we leave behind.
1: It's that phrase, isn't it? You can't have it all. Uh, and in, I don't think I realised that till I had children you know and i think it's i think we're in a slightly strange time in terms of the relationships between men and women at the moment i think there's all sorts of weird stuff flying around in the ether that didn't really exist in the same way when i was in my 20s and i i hope it kind of settles down cuz yeah it's kind of uncomfortable but um i don't know i i think there's a whole generation of women who had to sacrifice one part of themselves i know so many women even in my family who were not allowed to work you know and bring up a family or were not allowed to pursue a career because their husband's career was more important and it was too difficult to juggle it all Um, and on the other side i know women who really prioritized their career and suddenly found that they didn't have a husband or they didn't have children or they had to kind of accommodate a different kind of life and very few people get the whole shebang. And that's something you kind of work out more and more as you get older, I guess. Everybody pays with something.
0: (laughs) Sorry. sorry. Um. Please. You're listening to author and screenwriter Jojo Moyes recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. So you just made me think of something in the book, um, we have the example of Louisa's mom, who you mm-hmm. know, if you've read uh, her previous books, is is a really endearing character. But she's unable to see who she is or what she is if she's not being a caregiver, right? Yeah, taking care of other people, and you know, the role beyond. What do you do when people aren't depending upon me? And I wondered, you know, because you have written this about Louisa in a lot of detail, have you ever been that caregiver? Oh God, I'm um, i i <sighs> It's been part of my life for
1: so long. You know, I, I, I'm I, just one of these people who looks after other people. I think it's either kind of in you into a sort of crazy extent. So I, I while I was through college, I would look after my grandmother who was sick and who lived nearby. Um, it didn't trouble me at all because I loved her and, and you know, it was just the deal. And um, then you have kids and you look after them and, my other grandmother was sick until a couple of years ago when she passed, and I, I, I took great pleasure in going to see her and, and helping her out. But I don't think my husband has that same impulse. <laughs> I think that would be a kind way of putting it. Um, I think it's, it's probably quite a female thing, and so much of your energy can go into it. I am so grateful that I do a job that I love and that I've also shown that to m- my kids in a kind of indirect way that... You know, I'm their mom, but I'm also someone who really loves to do the thing that I do. I get absolute pleasure from it. Um, and, you know, I, occasionally I talk about this and I, I really hope I don't get kind of at, because you never know how people are gonna react. But a good friend of mine told me a few years ago that if you are a parent, you can only really do one other thing well. And that really stayed with me because I'd always been one of these people who, you know, I was trying to kind of bake the perfect cake and I was kind of trying to keep the perfect home and wax the bits of me that needed waxing and, you know, do the date night and do 89 blooming things and try and fit them in around everything else. And it was so liberating just hearing that. Like, I thought, actually, what is my priority? My priority is to do the job that I love and that I seem to be quite successful at, because this is a rare thing, you know, I was not successful for an awful lot longer than I've been successful, and this is better, so I kind of wanted to hang on to that. Um, But equally, I have three kids who need me. And what I found that I was doing, which I think, again, is a very maternal or parental thing, Every time they wanted me, I was like, yeah, I'm, just let me do this cooking, just let me do this ironing, just, you know, I, I just gotta do this thing in the garden and then I'm gonna be with you. And you suddenly realize that they're not gonna be with you forever. So I decided that I was gonna contract out every single thing that I could contract out. And when I wasn't writing, I was gonna sit on the sofa and cuddle my kids and talk to them about stuff or just walk the dogs with them or... Oh, thank you. I prefer the clapping to the hissing. <laughs> But it's funny because some, you say that to some audiences and not all women want to hear it because it's a very, it's almost a radical thing to say, I'm going to be a mum, but I'm not necessarily going to be a homemaker because I can't do everything. Um, And so that's what I do now. Uh, I have You know, someone else does my laundry, and you know, someone else does my garden because I can't do all that stuff. And there's still a residual bit of me that feels a little bit uncomfortable about it. But I feel like it's my duty to other women to be completely honest about that because I think when we're not, we betray other women. You know, we we say, "Yeah, sure, you can do it all." No, I don't have a social life. Like, I literally don't have a social life, and that's fine too because something has to give. I—that's what Facebook's for, right?
0: I don't hear any hissing. Okay. <laughs> but I think, you know, maybe that's one of those illusions that many people carry that we can do it all, or mm. I see this person doing it all, so therefore I should. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke <laughs> and mirrors. Say, it's like, but you know,
1: you might not be able to have it all, but you can certainly have an awful lot. Um, I feel like I, I really lucked out. I, I get great pleasure from my kids. I get great pleasure from just hanging out with my kids on the sofa. But you know what? I get to do a job that I love. How much more does one person need? You know, I don't need to bake perfect cakes. I can buy them. (laughs) They're probably going to do it better than me anyway.
0: (laughs) All right. So you've talked a little bit about you know who you've decided to be as a parent and Mm -hmm. a writer. Uh, what advice do you have for writers to become as prolific as you are, as a question from the audience?
1: Okay, I'm going to say something radically. I'm not sure you should be as prolific as me because I'm really, really tired all the time. <laughs> I'm so tired. Um, I, I would like to adjust my work-life balance a bit. But, in, okay, it's been really good to be this prolific for six or seven years. I think you should just work at your own pace is the answer. It suits me to work really hard. Um, it's Which just, means do you like have a daily
0: writing schedule? For yeah,
1: I mean, for a long time I used to get up at six and I would literally start work from the moment I woke up. I mean, with help. My husband would literally go downstairs, make the coffee, wake me up, Put the coffee in one hand and put my laptop in my lap and just go start and then leave me to it. And I would be writing before my eyes were probably properly open. And the great thing about that, as a as a woman writer, perhaps as a mother, is that. I could get stuff almost dredged up from my subconscious before my brain actually fills up with the detritus of the day, the school uniform that needs washing, the fish fingers in the fridge, the dog that needs to go to the vet, the eight million things that you tend to jumble about in your, in your head for the rest of the day. So I could often get 500 words done before breakfast, and then I would do all the other things that need needed doing around breakfast. And we also have quite a lot of animals at home, deal with them, and then I would go to work. Um, now my kids get up even earlier, and I just can't do half five. I'm just too old and tired, and I don't want to look like a sad horse every day. So I'm now, um, I'm now at the stage where I tend to just write in the mornings. I do my admin in the afternoon, and walk the dog and all that kind of stuff, and just try and do what I can. But I, I don't have a set schedule.
0: I've got a lot of there are a lot of questions. Okay, go for it. I'll try and talk less. No, no, no. I love this. I mean, this is perfect. You talk as much as you want to. Um, I want you to do whatever you want. I don't want you to be tired or stressed out. I'm just going
1: to hang out here, (laughs) just relax. Did you want a drink? um, No, it's fine. You didn't offer me that before.
0: (laughs) Well, now I know what's really going on.
1: (laughs) This is my social life.
0: (laughs) Only friends. <laughs> a lot of questions from the audience okay. about your, your writing and you know, the, the real emotion that it evokes mm-hmm. um, from a lot of people. So I have a question here. Do you ever cry or become really emotional when you are writing a moment?
1: If I don't cry, you won't cry. Oh.
0: Mm.
1: That's uh, <laughs> No, it's true. When I wrote the final letter in Me Before You, I cried so hard that the guy in the next office, who actually didn't like me very much, came next door to see if I was okay. <laughs> and he knocked on the door and opened it, and he said, is everything all right now? I went, yeah, it's going really well. It's really good. <laughs> I'm so happy. And he was just like, okay, just going to leave that there. Um, what I found over the years is... You have to feel it because it has to come from somewhere honest. I don't think you can write cynically and make people laugh or cry because I think it shows on the page. So to do that, you have to feel the things that your character is feeling. And if I can't make myself teary or make myself laugh, then something's not working. uh, And I just keep working at it until I can get there. And so it is this slightly weird job where to make myself properly sob in a day is a really good day's work,
0: yeah. <laughs> How about humor? You know, you tackle some really big topics, but there's a lot of humor, especially in, yeah. in the Louisa Clark books. D- is, is that something that you found as a way to, I don't know, help the medicine Well, I've
1: only introduced humor after me before you. I'd written eight books before then which didn't have a funny word in them.
0: Okay, can I tell you something a little funny? Okay. Today I was speaking with my colleagues and saying, How can I ask her why she wasn't funny before this? (laughs) Why weren't you funny? Um, Her first eight books weren't funny.
1: No, they weren't funny. They may not still be funny, but I think they're funny. Um, I just didn't think I could do comedy. I just, it didn't occur to me that I could be funny. And then when I came up with the idea for Me Before You, uh, which was sort of loosely based on a news story that was in England at the time, I pitched this idea to my agent and I could see she was like, oh, okay, that's quite a bleak story. Um, And In England, I don't know if it's the same here, but in England, we tend to disguise high emotion with really bad jokes. It's like, it's our way of dealing with with real emotion. So um, like our emergency services have the blackest humor. It's that they're very funny and it's probably, you know, not to everybody's taste, but um, that's, that's how we respond. And so I thought the only way I can make this book palatable because it's going to be grueling in places is if I also make people laugh. And so I just tried to introduce humor and touch wood, it, it kind of, it, it balanced it out.
0: How did you, uh, what was your inspiration for Louisa as a character?
1: Do you know, I have no idea. She just landed in my lap and my God, if I could make that happen again, I would, because it happens so rarely. Usually, I spend months thinking about characters. I have this whole routine where I buy an A4 hardback book with no lines—got to be no lines—and I have nice pens and I start sketching characters and I invent histories for them. I, you know, want to know what their parents did, where they grew up, what food they like to eat, what music they listen to. I do a thing called the "kick the dog" test. Um, there's no dogs harmed in this test. <laughs> Uh, um, I, I have my character walk down a road in my imagination and see someone kicking a dog. What do they do? Do they intervene? Do they throw a punch at the person kicking the dog? Do they kick the dog? Are they a psychopath? You know? Do they kind of pretend they haven't seen him walk by and then feel bad about it afterwards? Those sorts of tests tell you an awful lot about a character things that you might not actually use in the book, but it will inform the way the characters react with each other. And so usually I go through all these insane hoops before I even start. You know, I know what's in their fridge, what's in their handbag, whether they have lint at the bottom of their handbag. Um, Louisa did, by the way. Uh, And then Louisa just fell into my lap, as did Will. And it was really strange because I knew, I saw one scene in my head, which was the wheelchair dance at the wedding. And I, the, the exchange between them where he, he, she, uh, he says, you would have never let me look at your breasts like that if I wasn't in a wheelchair. And she says, you would have never looked at my breasts if you weren't in a wheelchair. And in those two lines, I knew exactly how they were to each other, that level of honesty, not letting each other get away with anything, a bit of humor, a little bit kind of flirty. And the characters just went outwards from that one scene.
0: Well, you must have known going into that book that you'd face a lot of scrutiny for how disability was portrayed, or did you?
1: No, not at all. And i tell you why, because no one was reading my books. (laughs) So (laughs) I I just thought I was writing it for me. In fact, you know, my husband used to joke that because of the subject matter, um, he said, this is going to be the book that finally finishes your career. And... um, He's nice like that. I did say Englishman's humor is kind of. We're still married. <laughs> um, but I wanted to. So here's the thing, and I, I don't really talk about this much, but um, this isn't going out on NPR, right? No, <laughs> um, nobody's disabled. I have a disabled son. Uh, my younger son is disabled. He was born disabled. He, he's profoundly deaf. And one of the things you learn very quickly if you're the parent of a disabled child is that the disability doesn't matter. You know, you have a couple of weeks or maybe longer where you're, in, you're slightly in shock because you have to adjust all your expectations, not your feelings, but your expectations about what they may or may not achieve and what you can want for them and what you can expect. You know, it's, it's a steep learning curve. But very quickly, I realised that the problem did not lie with him. It lay with people's expectations and reactions to him. And I was quite spiky and defensive of how people were around him, you know. Some people called him a tragedy, which I just wanted to punch them in the face. Um, Sorry, I'm not normally violent, but that's what mothers do, right? If you saw someone kicking a dog...
0: Oh, no, then I
1: would, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no cruelty to animals. Um, So anyway, part of the thinking when I started this book was I wanted to create a character where people very quickly felt that the disability was the least important thing about him. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I loved when that book came out was that women would fall in love with Will Traynor very quickly. And so the huge of the huge volume of, of letters and emails that I got in the first few years, I would say 70% of them were women who were in love with Will Traynor, who wanted to talk about him or wanted to tell me off uh, the ending, um, yeah. who, yeah, and and that's what I felt that I had done, which was create someone who was three-dimensional, who was crabby and intelligent and annoying and handsome and sexy and all those many things that, you know, people are. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until the film came out that, you know, the reaction changed, and it was quite a lesson to me in... Nuance, if you like, because I think you are able to convey things in a book that you possibly can't do in a film because of the structure, because of the way films are, and also p- possibly because of the wider reach of films, mm-hmm. you know,
0: things are reacted to in a very different way. But you did write the screenplay. For I did them. write the screenplay. So what was that like for you? I mean, because obviously there were things that didn't make it into the book, sure. or there are things you were attached to. How, what was that process like?
1: Well, it was really good for me. And I, I'm very conscious saying that, that a lot of writers who go to Hollywood have a truly terrible time. But I was lucky in that the director, Thea Sharrock, was a very collaborative person. She comes from theatre, so she was used to working with people rather than dictating to them. And she saw Will and Lou in the way that I saw Will and Lou, and that made life very easy for me because the discussions and the disagreements we had tended to be very uh, small ones. And there were some scenes that I had to leave out. You'll be aware that the maze scene was missing from the film. That was the culmination of a six-month, discussion because again and this was a really interesting lesson in terms of how screenwriting is different to books Uh, I'm assuming that most of you will know what I'm talking about when I talk about the maze scene where I I don't want to be too specific in case there's somebody young or sensitive something happens to Louisa in a maze that's not very nice um, when she's much younger and when I write this in the book I kind of write it in a very opaque way so that you're not entirely sure what has happened until quite a bit later. It's not spelt out. And what I found is in writing that into a screenplay, you cannot do it in a way that doesn't turn it into a horror story. And we tried again and again to do it in a way that was both respectful to the subject matter, because you can't trivialize that subject matter, but also, what we found was that every time I rewrote it, it overshadowed everything else. It overshadowed their relationship. It became kind of the focus of the story itself, which it wasn't meant to be. And so in the end, we, we had to drop it. And it was, it was really interesting because it's the thing that I get asked about most, but I still don't see how we could have done it because it would have changed the whole tone of the film.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott with the author Jojo Moyes. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for writers on a New England stage. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know Louisa has this traumatic history mm-hmm. and this is you know, an issue that so many people have hidden oh, yeah. uh, and now very much in the public eye. And so why create that backstory for her? In truth, because
1: it is so many women's lived reality, Uh, it's been really interesting, this Me Too thing, the conversations that it's opened up, and I think one of the things that I have found personally kind of shocking and a bit destabilizing, but also weirdly liberating because of the way women are supporting each other, is how many women have suffered things that they've just assimilated, that they've just gone, okay, well, you know, that's it. And that event was inspired by something that happened to somebody I, I knew. And unfortunately it's turned out to be not the only time that someone's told me that story. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard it, I was so shocked. And now I'm kind of not shocked and that's really a sad thing, but I just think just just because you write women 's commercial fiction or however we want to describe it, and it might be funny and it might be you know might have a kind of lightweight cover doesn't mean you can't tackle quite sticky issues you know things that are prevalent in in life now uh, you know there are political elements to my books, but they 're sugar coated generally i i don 't believe in kind of hammering things home, but I do like to write about things that might make people think a little bit.
0: Well, like, you know, end of life decisions. This is a, yeah. a huge deal. Um, I do have a, a reader from China who mm-hmm. asks, why did Will choose to die in Me Before You? Which I think is a really big question, but maybe maybe more, uh, do you agree with his decision to die? I don't know, is the answer,
1: um, and I guess my feeling when I wrote the book was that I didn't know, but what I didn't want to do was judge. Here's the thing. The book was inspired by a true life event that I heard. I was driving my kids back from school one day. I didn't contract that one out. And um, I heard this story on a radio about a young sportsman who had been left quadriplegic after an accident and several years later had persuaded his parents to take him to Dignitas, which is the Center for Assisted Suicide in, in Same Switzerland. Place in Switzerland, right? Yeah and i was so shocked by this story it actually felt like someone had punched me and i don't know if it's because my kids were young or or what but it just i kept thinking how could any mother because we always judge the mom right how could any mother agree to do that i just i couldn't get it i couldn't get my head around it at all because you just think you would fight till your dying day to to instill some kind of sense of something in your child you would want to make them want to live well here's the thing i i realized that life isn't black and white like that the more i read around this topic the more i read about this family what happened to this young man i discovered that i i couldn't judge him i couldn't judge his family and i couldn't judge him because what they were in was this extraordinary set of circumstance and he was an extraordinary man and that's the key he he did not react the way most people react and The strangest coincidence, while we were filming, we had a number of people on set whose job, who who were either quadriplegic or whose job was working with quadriplegics because we wanted to get the technicalities right. We wanted to make sure that we didn't get anything wrong. And one of these people worked with the young man who had taken his own life. And one day I talked to her about him and she said, She's really experienced. She's the most amazing woman. She's inspirational. She changes everybody's lives. And she said in her career, of all the hundreds of people that she's worked with, there had only ever been two people who she knew she couldn't get through to, and he was one of them. Mm. It was like a wall had gone up, and she couldn't break it down. And that's the topic I was kind of interested in. What if the person who you love refuses to play ball? What happens if everybody knows that the right thing is for them to want to live and they're just not having it how, how would you live with that as a mom? how would you live with that as a girlfriend how, you know it, it just it was one of those issues I couldn't quite get to the bottom of and When I write, the the issues that really fascinate me are the ones where there are no clear answers. And for me, there is no clear answer on that topic. When I was writing it, one of the other reasons I wrote it was that we had two members of our family who required 24-hour care. And it is really easy when you're not in that position, when you're not watching someone leading a life that is devoid of pleasure, devoid of dignity, because they are having to have stuff done to them every single day that they hate just to stay alive. I can't tell them that they should want to live because I knew what they were like before and I knew what their lives were like now and all I could feel was compassion. And there is a scene in me before you where Louisa tries to make Will eat carrots. I don't know if you remember because she thinks they're good for him. That was me with my family member Mm. who didn't like carrots. And what you realize is you feel so impotent, you feel so powerless, I was trying to mash these carrots into her beef to try and make her eat the carrots. And my dad was like, why are you making her eat carrots? If she wants to eat shrimp and chocolate and double cream for the rest of her life, that's her prerogative, it's not up to you. You know, there's so little left of her own autonomy. If she doesn't want to eat the carrots, don't make her eat the carrots. And, um, but we as human beings have such an impulse to try and make things better. So all of that stuff fed into the book. Sorry, this is a really long answer for a no,
0: question but A really interesting answer because it's such you know it 's no, not an uncomplicated subject no, and,
1: and it gets more complicated because, as a society, our medical technology has advanced at such a pace that we are now keeping people alive who wouldn 't have been kept alive twenty years ago they would have died of injuries, but we have not caught up with that as a, as a society. We have not managed to work out how to support those people and how to give them lives of pleasure and dignity and hope you know and until the two things marry up we're going to be asking ourselves this question again and again
0: well have you asked yourself what is a life worth living i mean do you have a dnr we call it here a do not resuscitate i don't you know, because directive
1: on one level i would like to feel that i had the autonomy to not want to end my life in a state of degradation and pain and, you know, misery. But at the same time, I think my own personal impulse to live and live for my children would be really, really strong. And and so I don't know what the answer is. I did actually speak to a, a law lord who'd helped um, go against the bill that went through in the, in the UK mm-hmm. to allow assisted suicide, and he was one of the key figures in going against it. And I had dinner with him and I said, can I ask why you turned it down in the face of you know, a huge lobbying from medical professionals, from families who were affected? And he said, the problem is we cannot work out how to protect the vulnerable. And until we can work out how to protect the vulnerable from the unexpected consequences of this bill, I can't allow it, even though I might agree with some of it. And this is the problem, we, we, we're we not, our laws, our society as a whole aren't keeping up with this.
0: Well, it's obviously a really complicated decision mm. and in the book, After You, you know, Louisa's really living with the consequences of it.
1: Well, that was one of the things I kept thinking about after the book, which was you know the book me before you ends on a, a semi-hopeful note, right. uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought I cannot imagine the consequences would be easy to live with. You know, if you are a sensitive person, as Louisa clearly is, and you had just helped somebody you love and their own life, I think you would be devastated by it. And I think, I think those consequences would live with you for an awful long time Mm -hmm. and so I didn't actually mean for After You to be as melancholy a book as it it ended up but the thing is you know we were talking about inhabiting characters Mm -hmm. you have to be true
0: to your character and She was just really sad. Yeah, Um, and she, you know, she did travel, she did buy a flat, but she kind of reverted to a life that felt safe to her, probably, part of her trauma. Exactly, because
1: I can't imagine the guilt. I can't imagine, you know, if, if I
0: put myself in her shoes, you would blame yourself. But you alluded to this when you were speaking earlier, the kind of idea that, you know, this was not a fairy tale, and... You know, I wonder, did people resist that, resent that, that you weren't sort of giving her this beautiful life of liberation? Do you want to hear something funny? Please. Only here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Only in the U.S. Do you know what? I think Europeans are much more comfortable with the idea of melancholy than Americans. I think you guys are perhaps naturally more optimistic than we are. We're quite glum. (laughs) We don't expect a lot. It's all going to be miserable anyway. You're going to die soon. So, you know, it's like the Germans, they lapped it up. Norwegians, yeah, give me. (laughs) Swedish, you know, all those Scandinavian countries, they were like, we're totally okay with sad Lou. The Americans were like, why can't she cheer herself up a bit? You know, (laughs) what happened to the old Louisa Clark? Where's the bounce, you know? It was quite funny because, you know, the, the books are successful all over the world now. And to see the different reactions in different countries is quite eye-opening. But yeah, it didn't go down well here in the same way that the first one did. I'm sorry. Third one's more cheerful. She's really cheery, just for you. Yeah.
0: You could do different versions for different countries. Don't tell that's a secret. Um, Well, you did say, you know, this is the third and the last of the louisa clark novels mm-hmm. how, how do you know when to let go of a character
1: well when i decided to write a sequel to me before you i i straight away saw it as a 3 i saw it as a horseshoe shape which was that you know maybe before you brought hello after you is kind of an exploration of grief and and how to rise up out of it and then uh, still me is is really the coming up again and louisa really working out questions of her own identity, what she really wants, now that she's out of the shadow of, of Will, and also perhaps to some extent of Sam, mm. she is having to work out who she is in this new landscape. And um, so yeah, it, it it's hard to leave her behind. It's really hard. The more I talk about it, the more I think, God, why did I do that? But I, I I don't want people to feel like I'm, you know, flogging my little stripey head stripy legged horse to death. I, I want people to look on her with fondness and I feel like if I kind of do Louisa's divorce, Louisa's custody battles, <laughs> Louisa's battle with middle aged spread, it's just not gonna have the same appeal. <laughs> Louisa's menopause, yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, okay, so I have to quickly ask you, because we have to draw to a close, but okay. um, where do you fall in this spectrum? You know, you were talking about mashing up the carrots to try and make s- <coughs> someone eat carrots. You know, Do you reach into this <coughs> bottomless bag of sunniness and pull out another lovely scheme to make people happy? Is that you? What? Me, personally? Gosh,
1: that's quite deep. Um, I'm English, we don't talk about emotions. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I asked if you just no, like no, some no, more sharing. No, no, no. It's fine. I've been in therapy. I'm better at this stuff now. Um, <laughs> I am definitely someone who wants everybody to feel better. You know, I think most of my books have a happy ending because I I really struggle when people are struggling around me. Um, you know, you were talking earlier about whether you're the kind of person. You know, I would have stolen the dog that was getting kicked I would have punched the person in the face and then I would have ended up with a dog that I didn't really want because <laughs> that's my impulse um, so yeah I, you know we live in kind of tough times at the moment and it was a fairly conscious decision to me to make this book a little bit joyful in places certainly in terms of the final few chapters there are moments that made me feel kind of uplifted for various reasons i don't want to kind of go into too many of them um but i i think it's it's good to make people smile it's it's much easier to make people cry than it is to make them laugh especially at the moment Um, so
0: i kind of i hope that the book just gives people a little bit of joy well, before we close, I have some people to thank who put this production together. The Music Hall Executive Producer is Patricia Lynch. Music Hall Producer is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's President is Betsy Gardella. Our Broadcast Producer for tonight from NHPR is Hannah McCarthy. The Music Hall Production Manager is Jeanne Morris. Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer, Ian Martin live stage photography by David Murray that's going to be available at Clear Eye Photo in just a couple of days. First let's thank the fantastic band Bob Lord and Dreadnought and join me in thanking Jojo Moyes for being here tonight with us.